And again, we are uh, glad to see you today. Um, a lot of faces that I don't know, so super glad to see you guys too. And um, man, even the faces that I do know, we're, we're equally as glad to see you. Like we're all on equal footing here. We're glad you're all here, kind of a thing. Um, man, Andrew, thanks so much last week for teaching and, and walking us through um, a good old loving passage. We're going to reference back to that a bit. We are in 1 John. We've been here a little while and have a little while to go. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 John chapter 3, and we're going we're gonna to pick up in there. We're going to finish off the third chapter today, and we'll be there. A couple quick announcements before the end, because when things start moving, we, we tend to forget. Uh, our second youth community group meets tonight. Okay, that's a big deal. We've been, we've been growing the youth from within and slightly from without, but over the course of 14 years, we actually now require our youth community group, so it meets us at our city workspace just kind of right down the street. Taylor and Kaylee Wood are leading that along with some other volunteers. Um, and so if you have seventh grade or above and you would like to take them, please do. They will eat. They will laugh. They, they may play some Nintendo Switch, um, some Mario Kart action, you know, things like that. And then they're going to read the Bible together. And so, man, it's on their level. Although I wish we could play Switch on Sunday mornings here. That would be fun. Um, but anyway, my son would beat us all at Mario Kart. And that's not fun. Um, that's demoralizing for a dad. But Anyway, so if you have uh, seventh and graders and seventh graders and above would like to take them, we would love to see them there. Um, and then I think those are the biggies. We'll hit a few more at the very end, but wanted to toss that out there. So today, like one of the, I'll give this lesson, and I, I mentioned it a pretty good bit, but like context is everything when we're reading and trying to understand Scripture. And, and this is one of these passages, I'll go ahead and tell you, like number one, we learn a couple things. Number one, that first one, context is of utmost importance when trying to understand, but also when we're trying to be good students of Scripture, we, we have to understand even our best translations are always going to be translations. Um, and so we're reading in English, whether you knew it or not, the Bible was not written originally in English, not even Old English in the 1500s. They've all been translations. And, and at some point or another, it was a translation from a translation to a translation. But luckily for us in the 20th century, we were able to go back to within one or two generations removed of manuscripts, and we're basically working with pretty early manuscripts translated directly into modern English. But here's an understanding. Koine Greek and English are not always the same as in which they translate. Like, it's, it's hard. It's never super simple. So it's not word for word. Um, because, you know, like if you've ever been to, to Mexico or somewhere that speaks like legit Spanish, and you just think you can open an app, and you can say, um, I would like a hamburger, please. And then you read exactly what Google Translate says to you, you know, translating word for word. They're going to look at you and be like, ha you're a silly American and you know nothing. Or any other country for that instance. Um, I think Nico's here. France, they may do that, but they're a lot nicer. And so they would, they would translate it for you and say, here's a hamburger, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but Greek to English, it's even, some places it's even harder. And so we have that occurring here today. We're going to do our best to try to parse through that and help it be a bit clearer. Uh, but we have to do that with an understanding of what Andrew read last week and even what came before that. And so I'm going to read a little bit of what Andrew finished with last week just to remind us where we're starting. Because there's some things in here that sound like if we pull them out, out of context, um, they could sound very prosperity gospel driven. And like, I'll go ahead and tell you that the prosperity gospel is not the gospel at all. It's a lie. And so we want to look at what the truth actually is. And if you don't know what the prosperity gospel is, that's great. Um, you're one step ahead. And so we'll be good. So let's pray. And then we're going to jump in. And, uh, and we'll be starting in verse 19 uh, through the end of that chapter. But we'll, we'll backpedal just a little bit. God, we thank you for loving us. Thank you so much for Jesus. And God, thank you for the word that you have uh, 
inspired men to write so that we may know you, know who we are in light of you, and then know how, how we should live our lives as a result of what you've done. Thank you that today, God, we don't have to do anything fancy to understand what your word's saying. We just have to dig a little bit. And God, I pray that it would do what you intended to do, like you would point it out to, to us who we really are and what our lives should look like as a result of the work that Christ has done. Um, God, thank you. Thank you for continuing to call us out from where we are and make us into a people that you desire and that you can send out on your mission. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, eesh. Uh, We'll backpedal just a little bit. We're going to be in 19 through 24, but I want to read 16 through 18, just kind of the tag end of what Andrew read last week to set us up. It says, By this, which is a common phrase in the book of John, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so before we set forth to, to dig into today's passage, a couple of things we need to be reminded of and we need to start with. Number one, like the way that we love is evidence of what Christ has done. The way that we love is evidence of what Christ has done. It is one of these by this statements kind of a deal. It's an indicator that we have been redeemed, that we have been changed, we are being sanctified, we're being turned into something that we were not before Christ got a hold of us and wrecked our lives, changed us, and began to reshape us into something new. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. Uh, we are new in Christ. And the way that we love reveals that. Also, in saying that and acknowledging that, we also have to understand that the the best example, the benchmark for that love is always going to be Jesus. It's always going to be Christ. And it says, by this you know love, that he laid down his life for us. So therefore, we should live in such a way that we do the same thing. Like Jesus is our example of love. He was the price that we could not pay. Uh, he was uh, the demonstration of the law being fulfilled. But also he was the perfect, um, not just example, but the perfect embodiment of what God's love looks like in flesh, because that was Jesus. He was God in flesh and walked among us, loved among us, loved us, showed us what that should look like. And so love demonstrates what's occurred. Jesus is the best example. But then there's this other thing hidden in there too that we have to acknowledge. If we do not love one another, it's also probably demonstrating that we don't know God. Okay? If we do not have love for one another then it's unlikely that we know God. Because one of the shortest passages in the Scripture, God is love. He is that. He has placed that in us as a result of salvation. We are to love as He is loved, uh, not just as a commandment, not just as a directive, but as a result of who we are. We are to love like Jesus. Some days that's easy. Some days that's hard. Some days we win. Some days we lose. But the striving should start every new morning with those new morning mercies. We should love like Jesus to the best of our ability. And so this is the context by what, we, what we're about to read. Like understanding, like this is love. We see it in Jesus. We should be doing it. If we're not doing it, there's a good chance that we actually are not united, yoked with God through Jesus. Okay? And, and John spoke in several of these terms throughout this book. Like reading 1 John's a little more difficult than it is to read like a Paulian letter because Paul is very formulaic and he writes in formulaic. John's just kind of, man, it's like he's an old man sitting across from you at Waffle House and, and he's just talking to you like a granddad. And it's all really, really good stuff. And he's not chasing his tail, but it is to a bit circuitous and it's just, you know, going around, which hits that word. Like that's just kind of the way it is. And so we have to do a little digging 
to figure it out. So we're going to start in verse 19. Let's read through 20, 24, and then we'll go back and, and clear up a little bit of the, the language issues and keep in mind the context. Starting in verse 19. By this, there's that phrase again, it will pop up towards the end again. It says, but by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Don't be confused. We're going to clear this up. It's, that's, that's the one. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Okay, Um, great text. Some very simple, clean stuff there that we'll get to towards the end. I feel like it it lands the plane in a very, very clean way. Chapter 3 wraps up in a nice kind of succinct posture, but... Getting there takes, takes a little effort. Let's remember the context. Chapter, I mean, verse 19. I'm going to read 19 and 20 together, and then we're going to kind of parse that out for us. It says, By this we shall know that we are in the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. A couple things to point out. Heart was mentioned last week in the text that we read. Um, it, was, it was mentioned... Uh, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? And then heart is mentioned here a couple times. Here's one of the issues when we go Greek to English. Two different words for heart in these, just separated by just a couple verses. Two different words for heart. And, and even in verse 17, uh, heart there is actually not the word for heart, okay? But it's, it's kind of this uh, theological place, so to speak, or an ontological place of like the seat of our emotions. In their time, and we talked about this in our community group last week, in their time, their translation would have read bowels, you know, instead of heart, because that was kind of the seat of their emotions. That's where they felt things. You know, when, it, when Jesus goes ashore and he has compassion on the crowd, that's, that's kind of a similar idea. There was a stirring within his bowels to such a degree that he had to do something for the people. That's where they felt their emotions. But today, when we read heart, it's actually capital K or lowercase k. It doesn't matter, cardia, where we actually get our word for our physical heart. But two different things. Both translated heart, but, but two different things in the way that we understand them. Um, if we're looking at the heart that we read last week, uh, when it was actually bowels, that would have been like the seat of their emotions. Okay, the seat of their emotions, the things that they felt, the things that they, they did as a result of their, their feelings. And that word was, was, was splachna, which was, or splachna, which is a very different word. But it, you know, then, for them, it would have been bowels. But either way, it was just like the seat of their emotion. But then heart for us here, cardia, where we get our word heart, that's not talking about the seat of our emotions. It's talking about uh, where we objectively self-evaluate our lives. Okay, so it's, you know, for us, that may, you know, we may say mind with that. It could, it could kind of interchange with that. Wherever it is that we process and we evaluate how we're doing, that's not feeling-based. That's aside from feeling to a degree. That's kind of like where do, we, where do we lay our life out within ourselves and we just start to look at it and say, this is good, this is good, this is bad, this is really bad, this is good. Overall, I'm doing okay. This is the place that they're talking about in this particular text today. That area, you could call that your heart. I don't care. If that's your heart, that's fine. I've talked to my kids. I'm like, the heart's kind of a metaphor, but it's also literal. My heart pumps, 
you know, and that's, that's literal, but my heart beats for your mom. That's a metaphor, okay? Um, that kind of thing. So wherever you want to put it, that's fine. But understand, today, we're not talking about the seat of emotions. Like, we're talking about the place that we objectively, like, evaluate how things are going, okay? Almost apart from emotion. But still, here, Greek to English, it, it's translated heart again. Starting again, I want to reread again because we, we just pitched out some stuff. It says, but by this we shall know that we are in the truth and reassure our heart, not here, seat of emotions, but reassure the place that we evaluate good, bad, how am I doing, objective reality uh, of our heart before him. For whenever our heart, not the seat of our emotions, that other place condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And here's the other issue when we're reading this in Greek, because they did their best here to kind of go a word-for-word translation, and that's what most modern, trustworthy English translations are going to do. Um, You know, even if you go back to King James, like, that's what they did their best to do. And then you've you've got a ton of different translations that do that. The ESV is one of those. It's my preference, but it's not the only one. Um, The problem is, it it can still get a bit clunky. It can get a bit clunky, because let me reread to you again. By this we shall know that we are in the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Like if we read that straight out, we're just kind of like, I, I don't have a clue what you're talking about right now. That's okay. That's okay. Again, John, the way that he's inspired to write, the way that he communicates, and the way that we translate all add to like a difficulty here. And so I want to give you an, an alternate reading. I'm not taking any words out. Okay, but I do want to give us an alternate reading. So let's read it this way. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. Break. Remove the next line and reassure our heart before him. We're going to remove that. We're going to put it at the end. Okay, I don't have a graphic to show you that, but I want you to do it in your brain. So it would, let's read it like this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything, and we can reassure our heart before him. You may see that as as a a subtle difference, but it flows much better, and here's why. In the context of what we talked about last week, the context of what we talked about last week is loving one another the way Christ has loved us and the way Christ displayed love, and and if we're not doing that, uh, then we don't know God. One of the questions that even came up in our community group last week was like, man, I'll be honest, uh, how do we know not to be super hard on ourselves when we're not, when we're, we're doing this, maybe not doing it well enough? Like, for instance, in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Like, one of the questions came up, like, I really think I'm doing pretty good at this, but I know that there's a whole lot more that I could do, and I feel a ton of guilt and a ton of turmoil when I self-evaluate this. This text is not giving us a way out, Okay. But it is telling us something like that last line, God is greater than our heart, the place where we self-evaluate, and He knows everything. So, when we've heard, we must love one another. Christ demonstrated it perfectly. And we are, like legitimately, we're doing the best of our ability to love one another like that. The brothers, the sisters, those that God has called by the same name of Jesus. Like, that's the one another's that we're talking about here. We've done it. Yet, at the end of the day, we stop and we're like, man, but I could have done so much more when we're in self-evaluation mode. That's when our self-evaluating heart condemns us. And John here is trying to remind the people, that's on you. That's not God. Like if you're out there and by the empowerment of the Spirit, which we'll talk about at the end, and you're doing your very best to love people, um, just love people. 
and if your heart is telling you that you haven't done enough, uh, that's probably not the Spirit dealing in you. That's probably you self-evaluating yourself and being a bit too harsh on you because God's greater than our heart and He knows everything and He's not condemning you. Does that make sense at all? When we take this relationship that God has started, God continues, uh, God will take to its full beautiful conclusion when He returns and makes us perfect. Uh, we want to live it like a relationship, but very honestly, most of the time we turn it into religion. And what religion looks like is I've created a checklist that nobody gave me, and every day I'm going to do my best to check every box that I need to and cross out every box that I don't need to do. And if I do that at the end of the day, I feel okay. The problem is Jesus came to live out those check boxes so that we wouldn't have to. Like he came to perfectly fulfill the law that I could never live out. To love one another perfectly, I'll never do that. Not while I'm here, not until God glorifies himself and us in union with him. New heaven, new earth kind of a thing. There's always going to be the battle that we hear Paul talk about frequently. Like it's always going to be there. I just need to say, hey God, today uh, with you as my guide, my assistant, my pusher, my puller, all of that. Like I need to do my very best to live this out. And at the end of the day, if that is true, I can go to bed not self-evaluate my heart knowing that, that God's not condemning me, that God knows everything, and so if there was something to condemn, he would do it. So if it's, there's a good chance that it's just me condemning myself. It's my self-evaluation, my place doing this, not God. Now, this is not a way out. Like, I think there's a couple of things that could be misinterpreted in this text. This, number one, we could say, well, I just need to do a little. Not what the text is saying. Okay? The text isn't saying, hey, go do just enough. Not there. The text is saying exactly what it said in the preceding verses. Like, if we have been bought by Jesus, if we are new according to Christ, then the way that we should live our life should look like the way that he lived his life and gave his life. In other words, he loved until the very end of himself, and we get to do that too. And as a matter of fact, we've been reborn to do that. And so that's our effort every single day. And so we just do it to the best of the ability that God has granted us with the people that are around us, with the scopes that we live in, with the circle of people that are in our orbit. We do it to the best of our ability. And at the end of the day, if we've done it to the best of our ability, we go down at night and we just say, thank you, God, for letting me do what you've called me to do. And we don't have to go through and be like, man, could I have done this better? Could I have done this better? Could I have done this better? We're not talking about sin right now. We do need to take account of our sin. We need to confess that sin and, and deal with that sin. John's already talked about that too. But this is in the context of how we love one another. If we are attaching guilt, if we're attaching guilt, like this is the phrase, if we are attaching guilt to ourself about the effectiveness of how we've loved one another, that's us, that's not God. And I know that seems like a fine line. And we, we do, we have to be a bit, you know, we have to be objective about it, and we have to be honest about it, and we have to, to deal with it appropriately, but this is just, man, we, we go and we do the best that we can as we've been called with who we've been called to, and at the end of the night, we thank God for the opportunities, and tomorrow we expect more. But we don't attach guilt to it. We don't self-evaluate it and check the boxes. Because if conviction needs to occur, God's going to do it. God is... God is greater than our heart, this self-evaluation place, and he knows everything. So if he needs to illuminate something in us, he will. We don't have to do it for him. We don't have to do it for him. And then in verse 21, it brings us to a place like if we've figured that out, 
okay? If we've got a handle on that, if God has brought us to a place that we are, we're good there, we're not sitting down there and we're, we're checking boxes on our chest at night, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Let's start with the first part. We'll get to this whatever we ask part. But go back to verse 21 for me. It says, Beloved, like again, he's, he's addressing them like children. He's like, so if we're at a place where our heart does not condemn us, if our self-evaluation place, if it's not going off and we're not condemning ourselves, understand, now, now as a result, because we're clear in that area, we can have confidence when we approach God. Like great confidence. And confidence is like the assurance that um, God's going to hear me, God's going to respond, He's going to act, that type of confidence. And it's not confidence in self, it's not confidence in my performance, it's not confidence in my goodness, it's not confidence in my righteousness, no, it's, it's confidence before God, like confidence in Him. It says we can have confidence before Him, and then, and whatever we ask, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. And I will say, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. This whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Again, this is why context is vital. Okay, If we read this out of the context of what we've been told to do in the preceding verses and the preceding chapters, this makes it sound like, hey, as long as I'm checking my boxes, whatever I ask, God's going to give. That's what it sounds like. But again, it's not broken from the preceding verses. It's not broken from the preceding ideas. It's not broken from the preceding framework that John has been laying since chapter 1, verse 1. It's still within the context of all of that. And so in this case, if we're unhindered by our self-evaluating heart, we have confidence to go to God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him if we've been keeping His commandments and do what pleases Him. This is in relation to how we love one another and what we need to do to love one another. That's the context. And so if, if we're free from the self-evaluation, tail-chasing kind of a thing, and we're just trusting God that if He's going to convict me to do more, He will convict me to do more, I don't have to do it on myself, and I have the confidence in God to approach Him, and then I ask this, God, I have no idea how to talk to my neighbor about how much I love them and how much you love them. Would you give me the ability to do so? He will hear and He will respond. God, I have no idea how to love my children when I come home and I am exhausted and I want them to see Christ in me. I need to know how and I need the strength to do that. That is your will. I'm doing my best to keep your commandments. I'm not self-evaluating my heart and how well or how bad I'm loving one another. I'm trusting you to convict me instead of me to convict myself. He hears that. He will give it to you. If I'm asking God, I, I don't even know how to talk to the guy in the cubicle right next to me. Because he speaks science fiction language and I don't. Would you let me understand Klingon for a day? God may respond to that. I, I don't know. I, I think there's already a, a central language other than Klingon. Um, but either way, like it's all, in, it's all in the context of what we've been called to do because Jesus did it first. And that's love one another. And he did it perfectly and showed us how. That's the everything here. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Whatever we need to live out the commandment to love one another that Christ demonstrated so perfectly. That's the whatever. But you could sit under another pastor, and I'm not saying where or, or who, but you could sit under another pastor who could say, this means that whatever you want, you ask it, God will give it to you. Number one, that's a lie, okay? Number two, that creates false, um, false hope in something that God never said that he would do. And number three, that places my desires over God's desires, and that would actually be a whole lot worse. 
So that's not true. So the context here is God has set us on a mission to love like Jesus. And if we need to ask for more assistance, more guidance, more ability, more bandwidth, more time, more opportunity to do so, and it's in the name of Jesus, he will answer and he'll give it to you. Whatever we ask to love one another the way we've been called, we'll receive from him. Because we are keeping his commandments and do what pleases him. There's another reason that I love the end of this verse right here. I don't know how many of you have been to Bible college or seminary. I know it's not the majority of you. But if you've ever sat under like a deep theological uh, teaching class, they try to remove emotion from God. I fought in like the first week of my the- one of my theology classes of, you know, God doesn't do this or God doesn't do that. There's no way to please God. There's no way to displease God. Jesus has made God perfectly content with us. Number one, Scripture disagrees with that, and this passage does right here. We can actually please God with our behavior. We can actually please God with the way that we love one another. We can actually please God with the way that we keep the commandments that he gave to us. God's our father, and he wants to see us live out this best life that he set before us. And we can actually please God. And, you know, some people may hear that as very condemning and very like, I don't know what to do with that. Man, I hear that as crazy encouraging to the fact that I have been brought to a place by Christ himself in which my actions, my living out commandments of God can actually bring pleasure to the God who made everything. To the God who gave me breath, to the God who shaped the mountains, to the God who shaped the rivers, to the God who did all of that, to the God that put the millions and millions of receptors in each eye, right, Neil Culler? Like, to to that God, I can actually do something that pleases him. That shouldn't happen. But faithful obedience to God by loving one another and loving him first apparently is pleasing to him. And it's okay to make that a goal. It's okay to wake up in the morning and say, God, I desire to please you with my life today. I desire to please you with my life today. Right here it says, uh, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The word here is, is obedience. And I know we don't like it. Like we don't like that word, obedience, because we're like, mm, I don't want to obey anybody. Well, if we, if we remove ourselves from the equation a little bit and we do start with the presupposition that God made everything, God does know what's best, um, then I think obedience to that God's okay. Like all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, in all places, all the omnis combined, like that God, I think it's okay to obey that God. And I think it's okay to seek to please that God just by, just by doing what he asks. Whatever you ask in his name, whatever you ask, you will receive because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And then in verse 23, here's where it gets simple and he brings it in. Because you may be asking, okay, well, what are those commandments? I know you've told me to love one another. I get that. But what, what, what have you told me? John's like, I knew you were going to ask. I knew you were going to ask. Uh, while you're chewing on your hash browns, because we're at Waffle House right now, let me answer. That's not how it happened. Okay? But I like to think that it did. Verse 23. And this is his commandment. Number one, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Number two, and we love one another. Man, that sounds incredibly familiar, right? I think, Andrew, you even brought it up last week. Andrew brought it up in the story of the Good Samaritan. To a degree, there was a lawyer. He was asking Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And in other places in the New Testament, it's recorded slightly different, but 
he could have said it twice or one could have heard something more than the other did, but, but bottom line, there was a lawyer, keeper of the law, the religious law, and he wanted to ask Jesus. He's like, so what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandment? And so Jesus went way back, and some people would have heard Shema Yisrael or Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. Love him with everything you have. Second to it or like it or attached to it or following it, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the commandment, that you believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and you love one another. Man, we love God, love one another. There's the commandments. And when He's talking to the lawyer, they kind of ask, why, why are those so important? And Jesus is like, all of the law hinges on just those two. Just those two. Now, here's, here's the confession and the admission. Without Jesus doing what Jesus did, we couldn't do that. It would just be a legalistic approach and we would fail every single day. Now, with Jesus, we're actually enabled to do that, but we could still fail every single day, but it's His righteousness that makes a difference and not mine. Now we actually get to. Now we're actually given the freedom to, to love God fully with everything that we have, believing through Jesus and only Jesus, and then we get to show the outcropping of that, the proof of my relationship with God, just through loving one another. So this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments, here's where it gets fun, abides in God and God in him. Abides in God and God in him. So whoever keeps these by the equipping of salvation and the Holy Spirit that comes to live in us, which he's going to remind us of in just a second, if we're doing these, As a result of what we've been given freedom to do, we get to live in God. Our life is wrapped up, tied up, maintained, and secured in God, and His life dwells in me. And again, that should not happen. Like again, in in this text, like, should I be able to please God? Absolutely not. But am I given the freedom to please God with my life through Jesus? Absolutely I am. Does it make sense? And then, to be wrapped up and maintained and kept secure in the life of God? That shouldn't happen. But then, God's life should be allowed to dwell in me, abide in me, like this vessel's not big enough. It should bust. But at the same time, somehow God can dwell in me. And if we read Ephesians well, the the location of the temple has changed from the time that the the people dwelt. God's temple was made by, by bricks and by stone and by gold and by mud and all of those things. But as a result of Christ, the location of the temple changed, but the purpose did not. The location became the people of God, the individual people of God, and the collective body of Christ. And the temple no longer mattered as it was made by bricks and hands and mud and all of those things. Now, God's Spirit dwells in us, in me, in you, in we. Still to honor God, still to point others towards God, still to convict us of when we do wrong, still to pull us out from places that we could go wrong, like the Spirit of God. That's why He dwells in us. Also as, continuing on, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. And now we have further proof that we've been redeemed by God. By this, the fact that God's Spirit does live in me. Does live in me. And there aren't magical words that makes that happen. It's based upon the covenant relationship that I enter into with God through Christ and Christ alone, abandoning my sin and choosing Jesus instead, believing on Him. As a result of that, now I'm baptized into the family by God by the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in me and in you, if we just believe. Again, another thing that shouldn't happen. That's an extension of grace that we should not have. 
but as a result of God's deal, the way that He decided to change mankind, it is true, and it can happen. And I would, like anecdotally, like I think, I don't like anecdotal, anecdotal evidence, but at the same time, if, if I ask you, like, what's changed in you since the time that you legitimately gave your life to Jesus? And, and a lot of you might even say something like, well, I'm aware of sin now. Do you know why you're aware of sin now? Because God's Spirit lives in you. It's not because you're smarter. You might say, well, I, I actually desire to take care of these brothers and sisters, these people that are in this family. That's not because you're better. That's because the Spirit I actually have desire to do good. I actually have desire to, to, to try my best to do the things that God asked me to do. Again, that's not because you read something. That's because the Spirit of God lives in you. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 goes on to say, like, you know, this, this Holy Spirit has come in as a seal of your salvation. And the very next verse says that He's a guarantee of your salvation, like a down payment that can't be taken away. It's non-refundable. This is the Holy Spirit that lives in us, lives in me, lives in we. He convicts us of sin. He pulls us out of wrongdoing. He points us towards good. He enables us to love. He enables us to avoid sin. He enables us to chase Jesus. He gives us understanding in times that we don't have it. He prays for us in groanings too deep for words when we don't know what to pray for ourselves, uh, according to uh, the rest of Scripture. Like, And it's just, that's the Spirit that lives in me. That's the Spirit that lives in you, if we believe. And it's also proof, proof that we are God's, proof that we do belong to him through Jesus. And again, it's a piece of grace we shouldn't experience, but we get to. Thick passage. What do we do with it? I think here's the first one, and I'm probably going to go in reverse order as it's written, go from back to front. The first is this, like, let's, let's aim to start simple, start simple. Believe in Jesus and love one another. Like if we're capable of doing that, like legitimately, like if we're capable of believing in Jesus, believing on Jesus, trusting in him to make me right with God, that's the kind of belief we're talking about here. If we're capable of doing that, then that means that we have been redeemed by the life, the death, the words, the resurrection, the very blood of Jesus, and now we're also capable of loving one another the way that we've been told to do it. So let's, let's seek to do that. Whether you're doing it for the very first time today because you've never heard the gospel and you just have something in you that wants to respond, and so you do want to confess your sin, you want to confess Jesus as Lord, you don't even know what that means, but you're going to ask me later. would love for you to. Um, or you've been following Jesus for a while. Same thing. Believe in the name of Jesus and love one another. Let's start simple. Let's just do that. We're capable of both through the work of Christ. And so believing in the name of Jesus, like you're like, well, I've already done that. I've already given my life to Christ. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about daily process, uh, living out of, out of process, like all those things, day by day, believing in the name of Jesus. That means that we're trusting him for my righteousness. We're trusting him for the things that I need to abandon. We're trusting him for provision. We're trusting him with the things that we pray for within his will. We're trusting him. We're believing in the name of Jesus so that we can have access to God. All of those things, long list, and that's just a short chunk of it. And then loving one another. Like we talked about this in groups this past week. We're going to continue to talk about it. Like, man, look for ways, pray for ways, seek ways to actually love one another. You know, it could be like we even talked about it in our group. Like, what does this look like? Sometimes it's a grand gesture. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just being in the same room at the same time and not saying a word just because they need you there. And that's okay. Sometimes it's a simple question of like, hey, you know what? 
I kind of had a thought about you yesterday, and I just wanted to ask how you're doing. And let them finish. And if they say fine, push back a little bit. Because that word doesn't work in family. It's just, it's just not a good word. It's far too vague and it's unintentional. So be intentional with it. Like if somebody says fine, just say, oh, what's that mean? I love you. What's, what's that mean? And listen. Don't try to fix. Don't try to rescue. Just hear. But then if someone knocks on your door and say, hey, can I talk? Don't look at your watch. Just say, yeah, we can do that. Figure it out. Like, what are ways that we get to love each other as a result of what Christ has done, what he's demonstrated? How can we believe on the name of Jesus? How can we love one another? Start simple there. The next, and connected to this, like, if that, if we believe on the name of Jesus, if we are loving for one another, let's actually move to that potentially confusing verse of praying for what we need. Like, asking for what we need to do this better. Like, because I do, I know this, like, in talking, if I ask, do you struggle really loving one another? A lot of people are going to say, I do. I do. I, I don't know what that looks like. I don't feel like I have time. I don't feel like I have the energy. I don't feel like I have the resources. I don't feel like I have this. I don't feel like I have that. Maybe sit down, and this is a place where self-evaluation is okay. And you just start to ask, God, what do I need to ask you for so that I may love the one another's better? And start praying for those things. Like when God reveals what you, need to, what you need in order to do that, is it time? Pray for more time. Is it intentionality on your part that you've been unwilling to make? Then pray that God would make you intentional. Is it a desire because you know that you should, but you don't really have a desire in you? Then maybe pray for that desire. Maybe even you start to pray this, and this is crazy. God, allow me to see need before they mention it. I believe God will give that. If you need that in order to love one another, to see need before people mention it, to have that supernatural exchange in which God kind of points you and pricks your heart for someone else's struggle, then ask for that. But I'll be careful. You ask for that and you get it, it's heavy. And you'll carry it. But you can use it. Maybe, maybe, maybe you just even have to start and ask, you know, and just say this, God, I just, I'm just not good at loving people. I'm great at loving myself, and I know I need to love people, and I really do love you, but I'm just, I'm just not good at it. Can you teach me what that means? Teach me what that means. But whatever it may be to fulfill this idea of a whatever you need, ask to God, and he will give it to you so that you may fulfill this commandment that's been made possible by the life, the death, the words, the resurrection of Jesus, to love one another, just start asking for it. Start asking for it. And then the third one is this. Maybe, maybe you're the one that sits here and you're the poster child for self-doubt. Like you're that guy or that girl. You're like, I, I didn't do enough yesterday to do this. I didn't do enough the day before. And you're living like in this perpetual cycle of guilt. I think guilt is one of Satan's favorite tools. Because when you struggle with guilt, you're not moving forward. You're just looking backwards. And that's not some catchy self-help thing. That's speaking from experience. When, I've, when I have self-imposed guilt on my life, like I can't move beyond that because I'm trying to fix that that was yesterday or the day before. And if I've confessed, if it was sin, it's already taken care of. The guilt I should have already let go of. But if you're a self-imposer of guilt... Put on your big boy pants or your big girl pants and let it go. You have more than permission 
you have direction. It's not our job to self-evaluate how well or, or how badly we love people. As long as we've done our best with the equipping of the Holy Spirit, at the end of the day, we can lay our heads down and we can thank God for the opportunity and we can thank Him that we have another day to do it again and just get up tomorrow morning and do it again. Let the guilt go. It traps us. Keeps us captive. It's not God's desire. Not God's desire. If you need help, like even opening that bag, reach out to one of us. If you need help that we can't give, and I say us, like me and my wife or any of our elders and their wives or community group leaders, if it's bigger than we can help you with, man, we'll refer you to somebody that does it for a living, like with letters after their name, and they're really good at it. If you're carrying around excess guilt, man, there's a good chance. There's a good chance it doesn't need to be there. Conviction's one thing, okay? Conviction is one thing. That's God's Spirit telling you that you've done something wrong and you need to do something about it. But we know guilt is different, especially when it comes to have we lived up to this enough? Have we done it well enough? I could have done it better and so I'd rather stew in that instead of moving forward to just do it. That's unnecessary guilt. And maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Good for you. Good for you. I mean that. Good for you. But if you're on the other end of it, you're like, I'm far too familiar with it. Give that to God. If you need help giving that over to God, just ask. Let's help. I love the simplicity of the closing of, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's just not simply know the story, but that believe in requires me taking faith out of my box and placing it in His. And then it becomes hope. Placing our hope in the name of Jesus and loving one another. Like It doesn't get a whole lot simpler than that. Not necessarily easy, because sometimes it's incredibly difficult, because we want to believe in a lot of other things, and we want to love a lot of other things, starting with ourselves. But it is simple. We can remember it. We can begin to apply it. And we can begin to pray for it. Let's do that. Let's do that. God, we thank you for uh, we thank you for your word today. Even sometimes word that we have to we have to dig a little bit at and scratch at. I thank you for giving us the tools and the resources and the spirit as a guide to, to help us do so. Um, God, thank you for just the simple call to to know you, to believe in your Son so that we may know you, and then just to love each other, to love each other, not in, in word or deed, but in, not in talk or word, but like in deed and truth, that kind of love that you talked to us about in the previous section, to legitimately love each other. And that love is determined by the other person's need, not our ability. God, I pray you equip us to do that. I pray you equip us to see it. I pray you equip us to strive for it. Um, and God, maybe even equip us to receive it. Because sometimes we're not good at that. God, if you could mark this faith family by anything, I pray that it would just be these two things, that we love you and that we love each other. Because, God, I do believe in the same thing that, that occurred in the book of Acts, Father. If, if our city sees that, they will see you. They will see you. And your name will be glorified, your gospel will be heard, and we will get to speak it. Thank you for tying us to your mission. We love you, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.